I'm Chris Reback. This is Investigating Breast Cancer, the podcast of the Breast Cancer Research Foundation and conversations with the world's leading scientists studying breast cancer prevention, diagnosis, treatment, survivorship, and metastasis, which is what we're discussing today in a way and tone that, frankly, I didn't see coming. Dr. Sophia Moriver is a professor of internal medicine and epidemiology at the University of Michigan, where she's also scientific director of the Moriver Breast Cancer Research Program and director of the Breast Cancer and Ovarian Cancer Risk Evaluation Program. As you'll hear, Dr. Moriver, who's been a BCRF investigator since 2004, discusses her unique, collaborative, and extraordinarily human approach to one of the most significant science questions of our time, how to find new strategies for the prevention and treatment of metastatic breast cancer. Why unique approach? Well, it's not just her science and the way she connects seemingly disparate disciplines to all focus on a single goal. It's also about the way she views her life's calling and applies that view to medicine. As she says in the conversation, quote, a tumor doesn't walk into my office, a whole person walks into my office. This is a view Dr. Moriver clearly held even before going through breast cancer treatment and care herself, an experience, she explains, that helped change the vocabulary she uses, the way she talks with her own patients. And a heads up, You'll want to hear the very, very end of this podcast and the inspirational way Dr. Moriver ends every conversation with their patients. It's exactly what breast cancer research and medical care generally is about. But before our conversation, an ask from me to you. I hope you like these Investigating Breast Cancer Conversations, and if so, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to iTunes, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Thank you for considering my request. Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation with Dr. Sophia Moriver. Dr. Moriver, thank you for your time. Oh, you're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. So I didn't have to spend very much time researching about you to get what I think must be a clear sense about the type of scientist and physician you are. In fact, there's one line on your research program webpage that I believe gives it away um, where you write, uh, and I'm quoting, we do not turn anyone away, nor do we think any case is hopeless before we start. Does that sum up your core philosophy? Yes, this is definitely operationally how we run it, how I run it, and that is, um, I like to think as a patient as a whole person, um, a tumor doesn't walk into my office. A whole person walks into my office with everything she or he uh, has experienced in, in his or her whole life, whole, whole life. And um, they have specific concerns, they have specific goals, they have dreams and aspirations. They've had tragedies. Everything bears into what's going to happen. And um, we know very little about how to tailor therapies um, from a biological perspective to how stressed or how happy or how relaxed somebody is. We don't know how to do that, but we can understand the person and discuss things with that person about what is likely to happen with different therapies and how they are likely to cope with it and who's home with them and who will bring them to 
the treatments and what are their goals? Is there a special trip they want to take for six months or is there a wedding coming up? You know, these little things are very important to us uh, in our lives. And I think to, to be a good doctor or at least to try to be as good a doctor as one can be, um, you need to really give everyone a chance, first of all, can't give up on anybody without knowing about their their tumor more, about their biology, and also about what's happened to them before. So yeah, we um, it has served me well for quite a few years. So <laughs> no, it, I'll it, continue to do that. Yeah, it it certainly has for uh, you know for a number of years, and the impact that you've been making. How do you, how do patients react to that? Does that so that approach and, and your kind of level of humanity, does it surprise them? I'm sure they, I'm sure they appreciate it, um, but, it, you know, from what we all have positively and negatively experienced in life, um, that might not be what they uh, expect immediately, you know, from, from somebody who specializes in uh, internal medicine and epidemiology. Well, I think... Um um, I think we, I try to give the care that I would like for my family members, for myself. Um, so when you do it that way, it becomes, when when your job is so close to, to, to life or death, um, then you you have the responsibility to to give it everything you've got, and uh, not just that part of your brain that remembers facts and figures and names of drugs and lists of side effects and the shape of cancer cells, but the other part of the brain that puts it all together and tries to predict what's likely to happen to this person given his or her circumstances today. And that requires knowing the person. So practicing medicine has been nothing but like an incredible privilege and pleasure for me. And I'm very, very, I, I'm very lucky to have been able to get have the career I have in combining a, uh, a passion for science and to bring it to the patients. I mean, it's just an unbelievable privilege and sure it took some sacrifices but I don't see <laughs> them as sacrifices I see them as just basically what it takes well that, that's a wonderful characterization and uh, I'm sure that your patients feel like uh, and the people who've benefited from your research feel like they are the ones who have uh, you know gotten the benefit and, and for whom the the privilege is um, let me ask you if I could um, about the science um, because that's the, you know, in the areas and where you are clearly just in listening to you, where you are putting both your, your heart and your mind, um, the science is, is, those are the discoveries that you're, you're making. And it's obviously, it's to understand your work, um, it's first imperative, I believe, to understand metastasis. And so before we get into kind of the, a little bit of the nitty gritty around your studies and, and the research, how do you explain to people not only what metastasis is, but why it happens and, and why that in some cases, cancer cells in one part of the body travel to other parts, yet in many other cases, this never happens at all? Indeed. 
Um, so, you know, cancers, basically all cancers have, uh, with, very, with possibly just one exception, um, have the capability of eventually going to distant organs. Some cancers do that more easily than others, and, and some cancers prefer certain organs over others. So the science of metastasis has exploded over the last 40, 50 years. And we know an awful lot about the individual steps that a cancer cell has to cope with. And it isn't an easy trip, let me assure you. The amazing thing about cancer is how hard it is for the cell to really make it. And so how powerful the the adaptations, you know, how the cancer cell has to constantly change or recruit other cells to help it mm. cope with the different parts of the body has to travel through you know a tiny tiny cell that is lodged in the breast tissue and it wakes up say it 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 was left behind or it evolved in the breast tissue because you know we focus a lot on breast cancer not exclusively but certainly most of our work is on breast cancer, a huge public health problem around the world. So we figure we want to tackle, and we want to tackle the most aggressive cancers, the ones that kill proportionately the most women. And so, um, you know, a tiny cell is in the breast, minding its own business. And then there is a constellation of things that need to happen for it to even begin to move uh, in, in that little place that it is lodged, and then to find the blood vessel, to get inside the blood vessel. In the blood is not good for cancer cells unless unless this is a leukemia that is a blood cancer. Yeah, cancers that arise in organs like prostate and breast and pancreas, once they are in the blood, it's a very hostile environment. It's not easy for them to survive. And so most of them die there, lucky for lucky for all of us. And um and then the immune system also is able to recognize them more easily once they are in the blood because a lot of the immune cells also circulate through the blood. So there is a there is a real war that is being waged uh every single day in every one of us. Most of us feel that we have uh, the potential to be developing little tiny cancers uh, throughout our lives, pretty much, most of which don't seem to uh, come and cause us any trouble. Uh, now, once a cancer is, you know, diagnosed in some organ, even if it is removed and then sometimes chemotherapy or hormonal therapies are given, there may be, even from the beginning, just a small, we call them clones, because they are all very similar to each other, um, clone of cells, group of cells, that already have the potential to spread. And why do we, why do they in some cases, and why don't they in some other cases? That is the real holy grail of oncology, in the sense that we all have theories and we have very detailed experimental models like I have in my lab and many other scientists, BCRF scientists have in their labs. 
but we don't have a, what we call what I would call from the physics world a unified theory of the cancer cell. We don't have that. We are we are working towards that to really understanding at a very broad what we call systemic level. If you take everything into account, the cancer cell, then the normal tissue where the cancer cell is right now, and then what else is happening in the body? Is this a patient who also has diabetes? Is mm. this a patient who is also obese? Is this a patient who's eating vegetables? Is this a patient who's smoking? Is he or she drinking uh, too much? Are they sedentary? Are they exercising? Are they stressed? Are they poor? Are they constantly concerned about where the next meal comes from? You know, um, uh, you know. I think if the government shutdown goes on for any longer, I think we should take, we should do. We are missing an opportunity to do a research study on government workers because they are under tremendous stress right now. And the prediction would be that there would be health consequences. Hmm. They they may be related to cancer or to other diseases. People under stress don't do well in multiple chronic diseases, and cancer is a chronic disease. So it's so interesting to hear you talk about this holistic approach and all of the different angles and aspects in which you need to look at it. First of all, it kind of, for me, goes back to the beginning of this conversation and how you even just described um, in your role, you need to think about all aspects of what's going on with the patient. It also, from what I've read, seems to be how you run your research lab. I mean, when your process, so one of the things that you're doing is you're using devices to study which breast, breast yes. cancer cells can migrate to different tissues. It, yes, to be To begin your process, you combine this theoretical view, what do the models predict will happen, with the actual experiments themselves. And to do this, you bring together physicists, electrical engineers, biological chemists, cell biologists, oncologists, more. How do you conduct that kind of orchestra? Oh, well, that's what I love the most. You know, I... Um, I just have to tell you in one minute why, and that is I decided to be a scientist when I was five years old. This is what I announced mm. to my parents. That's what I was going to be. <laughs> and when you're five, what do you know what science is and what do you know about this specialty or that specialty? But I understood that what I was happiest at is in asking questions and finding answers. And if I didn't know the answers to you know, research the answers. So in the time, of course, you couldn't Google everything. So you actually had to go to the library and read something and think about that and then go again the next day and so on. So anyway, I, I so remember that was, that, I remember reading. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Holding something in your hand, right? Besides yeah. a tablet. Yeah. Well, so, you know, it is through that process of wanting to be a scientist from such an early age where the disciplines mattered very little to me. I was just as interested as knowing what happened to Neanderthals as I was interested in how to cure cancer, although I had a very um, significant experience with cancer when I was 15, and my uh, father came down with like just about the worst kind of lung cancer a person can have. And so, you know, I felt obliged to study a lot about that to see how I could contribute to his 
to his treatment. So, you know, it's kind of crazy for a 15-year-old to have those aspirations. But I had already been thinking about science for 10 years by then. So I was <laughs> considering myself a semi-expert, which, of course, is pretty ridiculous. But nonetheless, I, I, that is something that has carried me. And even though I'm no longer 15, uh, fortunately, um, I am able to talk to all, a large number of types of scientists um, and uh, just respecting their skills and, and getting them excited about cancer. Cancer needs all these scientists. And the BCRF is basically the only research organization that respects that importance of bringing engineers and quantitative scientists in really uh, multidisciplinary, just live in, live out, you know, constantly experience the cancer phenomenon. You know, uh, take example of artificial intelligence. For example, we're using artificial intelligence in our lab and um, to figure out which cancer cells are going to go into the brain. Hmm. So that's a question that's never been tackled. You know, if you have a small tumor, um, nobody thinks of brain metastasis, but I do, because I know a certain number of those little tumors will show up in the brain and they will carry the day for that patient. The brain metastasis is a very, very, very serious metastatic event. And so people can survive it a certain number of weeks to months, even sometimes years. But it is rare. The years is very rare, whereas metastasis in other sites, people can survive many years, especially from breast or prostate cancer and so on. But brain metastasis have a certain way of attacking who we are because obviously our personality and our feelings and, and our identity resides in our brain. And so brain metastasis are especially something I I really have a specific um, you know, penchant for trying to beat. And so, and this is something that worried me before I was a physician. And so once I, I was able to invent a way to take a small tumor and then see if there is some physical phenomenon about the cells, because the blood-brain barrier is a true barrier. Now, the whole country now is involved in in a barrier question, right? Mm. And like, should we have a barrier? Uh, well, it turns out that in biology, we know a lot about barriers and there are leaky barriers, there are semi-leaky barriers, and there are real impassable barriers. So the, the blubbering barrier can become a leaky barrier, uh, barrier especially uh, for certain cancer cells, but the question was never asked. And... I just can't stand questions that are never asked. And so I built this whole system funded by BCRF to to try to see how the cells go through. But then once I had the system going, which, of course, there were engineers building it with me, then we realized that, hey, in order to understand this, the cells are so different one from the other, even though they come from the same person. We need artificial intelligence to try to figure out this, the data are too big. So if we look at 200,000 cells and each one is a separate experiment, then you need different methodologies in mathematics to really try to predict 
um, how do you really uh, separate the ones that will go through from the ones that won't. So we had to use machine learning, like the same thing that's used to predict the weather and so on, uh, which are incredibly large data sets and the motion of stars and planets in the distant galaxies. That's the kind of mathematics we're using to predict what's going to go in the brain. But I'm not scared by any of this. I mean, I know math is good, and I have a PhD in physics, so but I am not the one doing all that machine learning. I couldn't do it. I, I'm not trained in that, but I can talk to other scientists. And so we do have now the capability for the first time in pre- being able to predict by the shape and the behaviors of certain cells whether they are likely to go into the brain. And that's something, it's a paper that's being reviewed right now. And uh, it took about four years. So you have to be willing to have a bit of a dry spell, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for that question. So other things in your laboratory have to be producing uh, papers and, and, and results because, you know, you, in most scientific laboratories, you can't go for years without a publication or they'll think you are a complete failure. Of course, in the olden days, very famous scientists sometimes did go several years, but that's not the pace of biology research today. So when you talk about managing the orchestra, a lot of what I do is to stagger the the, the projects and manage the, the funding so that we don't run out of money for any of the projects and that they're all pr- producing results at a, at a fast clip to keep up with the, uh, with the pace of science today. That that makes a ton of sense, and it also makes me think, well, in the old days, we all used to read documents longer than 140 characters in length. So, uh, right. you know, whatever you can bring back from the past would, would be terrific. So I, I keep listening to you, and the, the, the journey and the difficulty, and to use your word, the barriers around the movement of cancer cells from one location to another. You talked about the trouble of, of traveling through the blood, except, you know, leukemia, cancer, and, and how, and, and the challenges of, of metastasis and, and a, a cancer cell moving into the brain, and yet we know it happens. The predictive nature, and that's kind of at the heart of so much of what you do, where would you say you are, where would you say we are, um, what do you say to patients around, um, here's what I'm looking at as I think about predicting, and you know, I'm not in the prediction business, you might also say, but when I think about what might happen around metastasis, what, what, what do you know about predicting when and how metastasis can occur? Yeah, well, for an individual patient um, who doesn't have metastasis yet, uh, the tools we use in the clinic are not quite as obviously as complete and and extensive as the tools we use in the laboratory. That's going to take a while to have a trajectory from the lab to the clinic uh, in a formal way. We have a trajectory from the clinic to the lab in that we collect tissues from patients and we do all this research and then we refine these predictors and then we test them in the real world. 
And we're in the process of doing that next step, which is to test them in the real world mm. in terms of over a broad range of patients. Um, can we predict whether what they are what their likely metastatic trajectory is going to be. But I tell you something we are really, really exciting, which is really getting very close to the clinic. A few years ago, I decided that I was very dissatisfied with the idea that when we take a, a biopsy from a patient, if that biopsy uh, is sequenced, that means the DNA uh, is studied and we find out the genes, uh, the gene changes that that tumor has undergone. A large number of labs, including a very, very well-known lab here at the University of Michigan has been doing that. And they recommend then drugs for patients. That was very unsatisfying to me in the sense that I, I thought this is a great first step. But in my mind, I predicted that there would often be lists of drugs and how would the patient and the doctor choose what drug to actually give the patient? So we set out also with help from BCRF, we set out to build a whole platform where we can take biopsies from the patients and test them for drugs in the laboratory in a manner that is consistent, rigorous, reproducible. All these important things that need to happen in a scientifically rigorous laboratory, because this has been attempted before. And so the oncology field has a very bad taste about drug testing of tumors, because there were many companies that were purporting to be doing that, they were not doing it correctly, partly because they didn't know, but then they shouldn't have been going commercial with that, but nonetheless, that happened. And so some of my teachers in oncology would tell me it will never be possible, but I never believed that because we have very advanced ways to culture cancer cells directly from the patient. And so we are very excited that now we can actually test 20, 30, 40 drugs in a matter of days after a patient has a biopsy. And then in addition to the drugs suggested by those studies that sequence the DNA, which are incredibly useful, we are then able to perhaps in the near future be able to produce priorities. Patient is not gonna take 20 drugs in succession. And the question is, well, what about combining two drugs? Which two should you combine? and why. So we have the capability of testing combinations, testing single drugs, and I believe that's where I'm going to put the most effort in my lab in the next five years to get to the point that we can work alongside those tests that are called genomic tests um, and uh, be able to really help doctors and patients say, okay, your tumor can be killed by these five different drugs uh, and these are the spectrum of side effects of these five drugs. And then they have something to discuss in the examining room. They have something to discuss about choices. Because right now we are pretty much guessing or they are opportunistic matches. 
Mm. If somebody has a mutation in a given gene and there happens to be a clinical trial open to a drug that may be related to that gene, then the patient gets put on that trial. There's nothing wrong with that because that's the best we can do now, but I think we can do better. And we need to do better because um, only we are only benefiting about 2 to 5% of the patients who are sequenced right now. Mm. And that's too low. We need to get to 80%. I want to get to 80, 90% in the next 5 to 10 years. I think we can be there. And then in that landscape, working with many other centers, I think we are looking at a horizon where in about 10 years, I think 80% of patients with metastasis can look forward to living years. I think that's a goal that is achievable if we put funding into this and if we work together. It's a combination of things. It's not going to be just one lab doing everything. Well, that's, uh, that certainly would be remarkable and uh, you know, no, no surprise that your mind is working in ways to bring together an orchestra of research labs as opposed to just thinking that uh, one instrument could, could do it all. Um, no. I, I want to ask about you a little bit more as well. Um, you, you've spoken about this publicly. You are not just a breast cancer scientist and physician. You're also a patient. Um, yes. Does clinical and scientific experience, um, and how does clinical and scientific experience apply to one's personal life when the, you know, one of the diseases that you've studied uh, your whole life, um, you end up getting as well? Yeah, that, um, you know, that's a bit a bit of a detour on the road, isn't it? Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm shopping for shoes on Michigan Avenue in Chicago, visiting one of my daughters. And from the time I chose the shoes till the time I paid for the shoes, I had cancer in both breasts. That was just really not right. <laughs> so anyway, um, that was a very unusual day. And, um, you know, I'm incredibly fortunate. I... Um, I have an incredibly supportive family, and uh, the hardest thing for me was to tell my daughter, who was right there, so there was no way to sort of uh, fake it and then tell her under other circumstances. It was right there at the Adidas store on Michigan Avenue. So, you know, I'll never forget it. And uh, But, you know, and so she started crying, and it was very sad for me to see her so sad and uh but then you know it's it's an early stage and like all early stages some have better biology than others so this is what i've done all my life so i know my biology and it is what it is uh, and i i have the best care here at the university of michigan i mean just uh, unbelievable care so for me the experience as a patient um it has been extraordinary, and I hope every single patient we see here has exactly the same experience. I also need to point out that I absolutely forbid my friends for doing anything out of the ordinary for me. Hmm. They were offering this and that, and I said, no, I want to I wanna see you when you have clinic. Oh, I'll see you on Saturday. No, no, I want to come on the regular clinic day. I don't want to fall through the cracks because you are doing things out of the ordinary. So even though I'm a doctor here and I've been here for many decades, <laughs> I got the same care anyone gets. 
because I like that idea. I like the system. I like to get the care that every patient gets. And so I, that's just a bit of advice to any listeners out there who are thinking, well, I can't get good care because I'm not a VIP. Don't try to be a VIP. Just make sure your doctor cares about you and that you're connected to the clinic. You know the office number. You you have a nurse or a scheduler at the clinic who's navigating your case, and you keep all your appointments and <laughs> bring a family member or a friend to take notes with you and so on. I mean, just do, just take care of yourself. And, and the, the systems in America are good to take care of patients who are aware more or less of the steps. So I went through all the steps for treatment and, um, you know, I never, I really missed uh, maybe a week of work because I just teleconferenced from my lazy boy. And, uh, you know, I just, I won't let uh, cancer define my life. It's something that happened to me, but um, on every day I am happening to cancer. So I'm beating back cancer in all of my patients and I'm helping my colleagues do the same. So I figured, you know, cancer got a week out of my life so far and made a bunch of my the people I love the most very unhappy, and I regret that a lot. But other than that, you know, I recovered that week. That's uh, that's terrific. And yes, you've recovered that week. You've given it on to others. Um, interesting to hear anything about your experience of going through that care as a patient. Did you? change or alter anything about the care that you give or did it instead maybe validate to yourself okay you know what um i'm you know i'm doing this okay i'm giving exactly the type of care that i would expect to have gotten myself did did was there anything that you kind of learned by going through it that altered the way you approach uh, patients well yes you know all of medicine in a way, our conversations that we have with our patients and the family, right? We practice medicine through conversations. People think that we practice medicine through the electronic medical record. Forget that. I mean, that's just an accident of history. What we do is use our brain to help people. It's what medicine is all about. And to conversations, to, to, to pros and cons, and to reasoning things, and to helping people find their path. So what my experience gave me, and I've always taken proud, pride uh, as, a, as a physician in thinking, you know, when I'm not in front of a patient, when I'm by myself thinking about life and what I do, I like to think of ways to say things to people. What words should I use? And I have trained myself to use certain words or certain comparisons to explain cancer and cancer therapy to people. And uh, in general, in the community, when I teach to my to my students, when I teach at the bedside, and then to my patients when I treat them. So what, I, what they did for me is it added to my vocabulary. Uh, when I experienced bilateral mastectomies as a patient, it incredibly added to my vocabulary when I describe bilateral mastectomies to my patients. And I do that very often. 
A lot of my patients undergo bilateral mastectomies. And so now that I have been a patient in that situation, I do have different words, different things I say. When I treat them with the drugs that I'm taking, then I'm able to say other things. You know, and, and some patients, they're close enough, and I've known them long enough that they know, but I don't necessarily bring up, so they don't know why I'm describing things in, so, in great detail. Uh, some of them know, but most of them don't. Um, but I feel that it has helped me uh, get closer in, in those parts of the treatment that I have experienced. And Dr. Moriver, just to close out, um, and what an interesting point about uh, vocabulary and conversation and changing so the way. So important. Yeah, yeah. So important. Yeah, yeah, it's great What lesson. you say cannot be unsaid. So to think about the words is super important, I think. Hmm. And to close out this conversation and, and words that I could keep listening to from you for a very long time, it's a terrific uh, a terrific you. conversation and the way that you approach everything just kind of all comes together. You can really feel it. Um, you've touched on this already, uh, but BCRF and the role that they've played in your research, um, that, how would you characterize that? Well, life-changing, you know. Um I would still be doing research if I didn't have a BCRF funding, but all of the great breakthroughs that I have um, that I have hoped for in my career were accelerated and in some cases completely made possible. So it has enhanced so tremendously my my contributions to humanity, which is the whole point of the work I do. So I don't know what else to say. That to say it's transformational, you know, transformational in every respect, because uh, not just the dollars. The dollars are certainly an important part of it. So for the listeners out there, the funding is unbelievably important. But the other part is the collaborations, is the is the is the whole group of scientists from around the world thinking in different ways and comparing ideas. It's just an amazing, an amazing community. And um, I have learned so much from them. So, And around the world really matters to you, doesn't it? I mean, very, very oh, quickly, sure. um, you're doing yeah. remarkable work, not just in the United States, but truly all over the world, including um, Africa. Yes, we are definitely very interested uh, in continuing our work in Africa. And, uh, you know, we are studying African samples in our lab, and we have trained African um, uh, researchers in our lab who are practicing in different countries. So I am very committed to global cancer health, and I will continue to do the best I can. Um, I think we need to enhance the care of women around the world, and, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us in the United States working on this, and um, there, it, it, because you know it's difficult with the funding. You know, it's diff it's expensive. Things cost a lot more if you have to spend twenty thousand dollars traveling back and forth and sending samples and buying equipment in another country and things like that. But um, but we managed to make at least some progress. So yes. 
We are here to create cures for everyone. Dr. Moriver, thank you. Thank you for your time and, of course, most importantly, for the work and care that you've given to uh, people all over the world. My pleasure. I always end my conversations with my patients to life. <laughs> to life. Thank you. That was my conversation with Dr. Moriver. My thanks to Dr. Moriver for joining and you for listening. To learn more about breast cancer research or to subscribe to our podcast, go to bcrf.org slash podcasts. Thank you.